our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. And as usual here, I suggest you keep the Bible open in front of you to follow along as we move through the passage. At Christ the King, if you are joining us this morning, we have been working our way through the written sermon called Hebrews since about September. So <laughs> we've been at it a while and there's a ways to go. But we are now in the heart of it. And being in the heart of it, as we've said, we've begun to pick up on the heartbeat of this sermon. That which is at the center of the pastor's teaching, as the pastor who wrote Hebrews urges his hearers and urges us to hold fast, to persevere, to run with endurance the race set before us. And if you've been here in recent weeks, you know what this is, of course. <clears throat> the heartbeat of Hebrews is Christ as high priest. Chapter 4, verse 14 is where we started. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, Pastor writes. Christ as high priest is what's in focus in this very large central section of Hebrews that begins there in chapter 4, verse 14, and goes all the way to the chapter 10, verse 25. Because it is Christ as high priest that the recipients of this sermon must grasp. It is what we must grasp if we're to do what the pastor says we have to do, if we're to endure. You have need of endurance, chapter 10, verse 36 says, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So, the last three times we've been together here in Hebrews, we have seen how the pastor has been working rather hard to ensure that his hearers can hear the heartbeat of his sermon, right? That they can take it in, this teaching about Jesus as high priest. That's why the pastor stopped, if you recall, in chapter 5, verse 11. About this, we have much to say. The pastor told them, but they had become dull of hearing. And so we've seen how the pastor shamed them a bit in chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 3. And then we've seen how the pastor sternly warns them in verses 4 to 8 of chapter 6. And then finally last week we saw how the pastor turned to comfort them in verses 9 to 12. Though we speak in this way, verse 9 begins, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The pastor's sure that God sees what he sees in them and that their dullness of hearing and the dangerous spiritual regression, notwithstanding, they're not lost yet. And so the pastor comforts them. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. They are, as we said last week, the real deal. Love has characterized and continues to characterize their lives as a church. 
And so the pastor gives them strong encouragement and comfort. And as we said at the end of last week, the pastor's desire is that the comfort he's giving them will continue. So let's reread now verses 11 and 12, which was the end of last week's text. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. We didn't make the link last week when we were out of time at the end of the sermon, but it's a link we did make a few weeks ago. That word that's translated sluggish there, chapter 6, verse 12, is the same word that's been translated dull in the, in the expression dull of hearing that started this whole parenthetical section in chapter 5, verse 11. Meaning what? Meaning the pastor is moving them on, isn't he? It's time now for solid food. Yes, they had become dull of hearing, to some degree, at least. But now, now in response to the pastor having shamed them, having warned them, and then having comforted them, the pastor now desires and expects that they will not be sluggish anymore. And so you'll notice in verse 12 how it is that the pastor hopes that will be realized in their lives. He desires that they not be sluggish, but as the opposite of that, as the opposite of such unresponsiveness to God's word, he desires that instead they be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The pastor's hope is that their lives of faith will be lived in imitation of others who have gone before them, which will be a big deal in Hebrews. As you know, Lord willing, we will one day come to Hebrews 11. And there we'll have lots to say about what faith and patience look like as the pastor in Hebrews 11 takes us right into that cloud of witnesses that we're meant to imitate. But... Even while that is the method the pastor will urge for his hearers and for us, that's not the next step he takes in our text this morning. At least it's not primarily that in this passage. It is here, of course, you see it in verse 15 of, of Hebrews 6, where the pastor describes Abraham as having patiently waited, right? Obviously picking up on the terminology of in imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There is an example there to imitate. But that's not the main focus of verses 13 to 20. Because before his hearers can imitate the faithful, there's something they need to grasp. And to get at it, we could ask this question. What is it, Christian, that drives the life of faith? Or how is it that you and I and the recipients of Hebrews can have faith at all? And I think the answer to that question is found at the very end of verse 12 and that it's what then will lead us straight into our text this morning. It's the promises. Or perhaps more accurately, in light of 
verses 13 to 20. It's the nature of the promises. And I do want this to make some kind of deep sense to us this morning. So let me run up to it once again. The pastor is desiring that the comfort that he's given his hearers will continue as they show the same earnestness, imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. But if that's going to happen... If the hearers of Hebrews are going to persevere in that way, what must be fixed in their minds and in their hearts is the certainty of the promises. Their sureness. (laughs) Faith only exists in the context of God's promises, brothers and sisters. And those promises, the pastor is reminding them in our text, can and must be regarded as firm, as secure. We do not have faith in faith, Christians. Biblical faith is not some kind of optimistic living. It is not some kind of vague sense that things will probably turn out all right in the end. Faith in the Bible is trusting. And real faith is the kind of trusting that goes on trusting through whatever comes because it trusts, get this, because it trusts in the God who's made unbreakable promises and will surely keep them. And so with that in view, faith works as we trust those promises for the future. As we live our lives faithfully and obediently in the present, whatever the circumstances may be, while also remembering God's faithfulness and the signs of God's faithfulness that we've experienced in the past. That's just the way faith works. And so I'm suggesting that it is the promises at the end of verse 12 that now become the focus of the pastor's attention in verses 13 to 20. And the main point as I read it is that those promises are certain. The pastor knows we can't live by faith without that. Do you remember how Hebrews 11 starts before any of the examples are given in that chapter for us to imitate? This is Hebrews 11 verse 1. It says, now faith is the... Assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So in Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20, I think it's that assurance and conviction that God's promises are valid that becomes the primary focus even as the pastor here is bringing his hearers back to the heartbeat of his sermon. Christ as high priest. You can see that's where we end up at the end of verse 20, right? If you look at the end of verse 20, it's focusing on Jesus who became a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. These purposes are running parallel now. The way this works is this. (laughs) I think. I think the pastor's saying to his hearers, the fact that Jesus Christ is our high priest is the way we know the promises of God are certain. 
Now, that's how I'll try and summarize the point of verses 13 to 20, and I'll say it again. I think the pastor wants his hearers, he wants us to understand that the fact that Jesus is their high priest is ultimately also the way they know the promises of God are certain. Now, we'll need to think about that. And I'll let you know right now that it's going to take me two sermons on this passage to get us there. I had not planned it that way originally, but I've decided that's what it'll take. So we're in this text this morning, and we're going to be in the same text the next time we're in Hebrews. But I think it's worth two sermons, so I'm going to do it. Because we're laying a foundation here for a lot of the study that's going to come in Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. And it's worth it because once we get it, when we see how Christ as high priest means that the promises of God are certain, and we embrace that fact in our hearts and in our minds, then what comes is strong encouragement to live the life of faith obedience, to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's what the pastor wants because that's what God wants. It's right there in verse 18 of our text. God himself desires that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Sounds like Hebrews 11 verse 1. That's what I want. That's the goal. But as always, to get to the goal, we do it by trying to follow the pastor's thoughts as best we can. <laughs> and we're going to consider the passage in two parts. It's not an easy text. The first part will be for today. The second part will be for the next time we're in Hebrews, two weeks from today. But I'll give you the big picture now, and hopefully it'll make more sense as we go. I've already stated that the fact that Jesus is our high priest is the way we know the promises of God are certain for us. That's the conclusion, but now to get us there, in looking at verses 13 to 20, I will say to you they are about one promise, or one set of promises, I guess you could say, one promise or set of promises, but two oaths. One promise and two oaths. In verses 13 to 16, which is where we are this morning, the pastor takes us back to Abraham. We go all the way back to the origin of the promise or the set of promises. Even as we also will focus on a key moment in the history of that promise when God gave an oath concerning it. And that's the first oath that the pastor considers in verses 13 to 16. And then with that promise or set of promises still in view, I will argue, as we move to verses 17 and 20, and with that first oath as the explanatory backdrop for what's coming, I think the pastor then moves on and changes the focus. You heard it in Philip's reading in verses 17 to 20, directing our attention to, I think, a second oath. And it's that, as we'll see next week, that brings us back to the heartbeat of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is high priest. 
So that's the structure I see. One promise or one set of promises and two oaths. And so we begin now, and today we will remain in verses 13 to 16. And you're just going to have to trust me because this is going to be long and somewhat detailed in order to set up what's coming in verses 17 to 20. So the payoff, well, there's payoff this morning too, but the, the, the payoff will be next time more. So let's read it, beginning verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. <laughs> now, I'd like to begin by making two adjustments, if I may be so bold, to the way that the ESV translates verses 13 and 14. They're rooted in the Greek. I'm not trying to change the meaning of the verses. I am trying to instead bring to the surface more clearly what I think is going on. But what I'm not sure you'd catch if you just read the ESV alone. So first in verse 13, two, two adjustments. In verse 13, first of all, I think it'd be clearer to translate the beginning of that verse as, when God had made a promise to Abraham. Or if you prefer this, God having made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, swore by himself, saying what you then read in verse 14. In other words, there are two events in view in Hebrews, in, in verses 13 and 14. They are not one event. And those two events take place at different times. The first event is that God made a prior promise. God having made a promise to Abraham now does something else. And that's something else. The second event is that God swears by himself, as it says in the end of verse 13. Now, when you read that language about God swearing by himself, that's technical stuff. That, what that means is God took an oath, the content of which we find in verse 14. So there's a promise that comes first, and then there's an oath that comes later. God, having made a promise to Abraham, then at a later time swears an oath. That's the first adjustment just to get you thinking in this way. The second adjustment I'd like to make then is in the quote in verse 14, which I've already said is the oath language. In the ESV, this reads, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. But the problem is that in the English, that sounds like it's just a restatement of the promise, doesn't it? So that it's quite easily, I think, in fact, I think it would be the normal way you do it, in reading verses 13 and 14 in the ESV, you'd read it this way. When God made a promise to Abraham, that's the beginning of verse 13, he swore by himself, that's the end of verse 13, and what he said when he made a promise swearing by himself was, I will bless you and multiply you. Right? But in fact, and if you read Greek and you have the Greek there, you could see this, a couple of you do. The words in verse 14 are more literally... If I will not surely bless you and multiply you. 
dot, 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 which sounds wrong because it's not a complete sentence. But that's, that's actually right. It's not a complete sentence, either in the English I just gave you or in the Greek. What you have in verse 14 is part of an implied longer statement. It's part of an oath. And it has that negative in it. It's as though you or I were to say, if I don't keep the promise I made to you, may I never be trusted again. Only in this case, we can leave off the second part of that statement because we'll just assume it's implied so that all we would have to say is, eh, if I don't keep the promise I made. And you understand. Makes sense? Verse 14 is God saying something like, if I will not surely bless you and surely multiply you, fill in the blank, <laughs> may my name forever be mud or something, right? Worthless, right? You get the point. The point is you'd have no reason to ever trust me again. It's important to see that this is an oath, not just a promise. God's swearing by himself here, meaning he's swearing on his own honor. The key to understanding what the pastor's doing in this whole text is to see that the promise and the oath are not the same thing. Now they're related, obviously, content similar. But they're not the same, and we're, we're going to see why as we go. But you see initially that they're not the same thing by these grammatical adjustments that I've just made, those two adjustments, if you were to make them. But we can also understand it contextually. Because the oath that the pastor quotes there in verse 14, it is in quote marks, right? Yes. That's in quote marks in verse 14, that's taken directly from Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, technically. But once you know that, once you know that the quote in verse 14, this oath, this is taken from Genesis 22, the question ought to be, well, what's going on in Genesis 22? So maybe if you can, keep your finger in Hebrews, but turn back to Genesis 22 if you want, just to look at it. Genesis, first book of the Bible, go to chapter 22. We won't read it all. Many of you know what this chapter is. We'll just get the context right away from verse 2 of that chapter. Verse 2, Genesis 22, God said to Abraham, this is the chapter the oath comes from later, right? Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. That's what Genesis 22 is about. God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Only if you've ever read Genesis, you know the significance of Isaac. Isaac's the literal embodiment of the promise or the, the set of promises that God had long ago made to Abraham, right? Now you're beginning to see how this works on the, on the scale of Genesis that we're looking at here. We already noted in the text in Hebrews that the promises came earlier than this moment that's now being quoted from Genesis 22, verse 17, that's in view. And indeed, in fact, you go all the way back to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, which is the beginning point in Genesis of Abraham's relationship with the Lord, and you find that God promises Abraham land and offspring and universal blessing. 
Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then a number of things happen after that, <laughs> including Abraham meeting Melchizedek, about which we'll have a lot more to say in the coming weeks. But listen to how that promise from Genesis 12 is then reinforced in Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In other words, all the stuff I've already promised you, it'll happen. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. We don't exactly know who that is, but the point is it wasn't Abraham's son. And the word of the Lord came to him, Genesis 15, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. You get the point? Isaac's the whole ballgame. You get to Genesis 22. There's no land yet. There's no all the families of the earth being blessed yet. How's all that going to come about? And the answer is way in the future. <laughs> Via the offspring. Which of course here means through Isaac. And you know how in Genesis there's all this drama around Sarah not having children, Abraham's wife not having children, even though the promise has been made. She laughs when she overhears the Lord making the promise that she will bear a son, right? She doesn't believe it. Abraham didn't really believe it either. She and Abraham try to make other arrangements through Hagar. I mean, the whole thing's about Isaac. Practically, the whole thing. Because Isaac's the embodiment of all of God's promise. And he finally born in Genesis chapter 21, when Abraham's 100 years old, the text says. And then you come to Genesis chapter 22, and the Lord says, Take your son and sacrifice him. And of course, the incredible thing is that Abraham does it. Or he will do it. He would do it. He was willing to do it. He was doing it until the Lord stops him at the last second. In verses 11 and 12 of Genesis 22. Now, the question that we'll consider at greater length when we do get to Hebrews chapter 11, and we're focused on the example of Abraham explicitly here, is how can he do that? And the answer Hebrews 11 gives is by faith. Because the answer is Abraham trusted the promises because Abraham trusted God. You see, at this time, his was an unflinching confidence in the righteousness and power of the one who'd made the promises. Abraham would withhold nothing. And we talked about this when we were considering Abraham's life Oh, a long time ago when we were studying Galatians and Paul refers to Abraham as the man of faith. Remember that in Galatians? And part of what we said then, and that I'll just repeat now without going into all the rest of it, is that by the time you get to Genesis chapter 22, Abraham's completely sold on the promises. 
Because by that point in his life, he totally trusts God. Now, he had not always trusted God like that. As you know, if you've ever read Genesis, I mean, the life of faith, the life of faith is a roller coaster. It's not a linear progression, as we've said before. But the Lord has been at work as he's at work in your life. And he's rescued Abraham from Abraham's own sin sometimes. He's proven his own faithfulness over and over, even at points when Abraham hasn't trusted him. Why? So that by the time you get to Genesis chapter 22, Abraham's ready. And so in Genesis 22, verse 5, I just can't resist telling you about this. Abraham says, Genesis 22, verse 5, he says to his young men when he reaches the place where the Lord had sent him to do this thing, he says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. You hear that? You almost ought to cry when you read that. Abraham was confident that he and Isaac would return together. Why? Hebrews 11, verse 19, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him, meaning Isaac, from the dead. And then listen to this. The pastor says there in Hebrews 11, verse 19, from which, meaning from the dead, Figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive him back, which is important, that last little bit. Because this is where I think we need to read verse 15 of our passage back in Hebrews 6. So turn back to Hebrews 6 if you're away from it. Go now to verse 15. We will read about the oath that's made in Genesis 22 a little later. But verse 15 of our passage this, this morning this becomes the emphasis for the pastor here. Chapter 6, verse 15 says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Which is not really a very easy verse to understand if you stop and think about it. Some of it's clear, I think, the, the, that word thus there. I think that has to be a reference to this moment we're talking about in Genesis 22. Abraham's faith on display there. That's the setting. Thus, having patiently waited, I think also makes some sense because now at this point, you get it, the promises of the land and the offspring and the blessing, that had come years and years before this. This is the pastor's summary of that whole time up to and now including, mind you, this great trial and testing that Abraham faces successfully in Genesis chapter 22. I mean, yes, he had faith. This is the summary of Abraham's life of faith. He patiently waited. He trusted the Lord just as we're supposed to do. But then what does it mean in verse 15 to say that at that moment in Genesis 22, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise? How can the pastor say that? Abraham obtained the promise? You see the problem? This cannot mean Abraham received the whole thing. No, he didn't. Not yet. Hebrews 11, verse 13 explicitly says of Abraham and his faithful offspring, quote, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. You hear the problem? Our verse says he obtained the promise. Later, the pastor says he did not receive the things promised. The question has to be, 
what did Abraham obtain in that Genesis 22 moment? And why at that moment? What about that moment is significant? And now I think the answer is this, and that this becomes the critical point that we have to make now so that we can make it when we get to verses 17 to 20 next time. Because I think that when the pastor says Abraham obtained the promise, what it means is Abraham obtained the concrete confirmation that everything God had promised him would come to pass. And what I see is that there are two parts to what I just called the concrete confirmation. There's the part that is the Lord's action. I mean, the Lord does something in Genesis 22 to show Abraham what what he will do. And along with what the Lord does come the oath. (laughs) He swears an oath. He says in that context, if I, Abraham, if I will not surely bless you and multiply you, Okay, you feel it? I think the key is that with the giving of the oath, God himself acts in such a way so as to secure for Abraham what was promised. Not because the promise was in doubt. Abraham trusted the promise. Abraham, full of faith, was going to do everything the Lord told him to do. But then the Lord swears the oath. He gives Abraham this security, if you will. Because the knife was in the air, right? But, Genesis 22, verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him and said, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What shall be? It, whatever the Lord needs to do to fulfill his promise, it will be provided. That's the point. The Lord will provide. Not because Abraham didn't think the Lord would provide before. I'm just, the point is, he sees it. <laughs> and then comes the oath. The angel calls a second time, having stopped Abraham, having provided the offering of the ram. Then Genesis 22, verse 16. This is where our verse in Hebrews, this is where it's coming from. Genesis 22, verse 16. He said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. You hear it? That's the background of the wording in our Hebrews passage about God swearing by himself. By myself, I have sworn, because you have done this. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now that is the content of the promise. But this is the oath. (laughs) In other words, in Genesis 22, God himself acted to secure the promise. And in that moment, in conjunction with his provision of the ram and the figurative return of Isaac from the dead, I take that really seriously, what the pastor says there. God made an oath. You see, and I think all of that, those two things together, is, is perhaps why the pastor can say, 
That's when Abraham obtained the promise. Not because the full promise was then realized. And not because the Lord had just simply restated the promise. But because God had made an oath. And when God made that oath, it involved a tangible element of confirmation of his prior promise. You see, now, I must give credit to Jonathan Griffiths, a scholar who has written a book called Hebrews and Divine Speech. It's a very technical book, but it makes this point, I think, really compellingly. That in his oath, God himself acts in such a way accompanying his words so as to secure what was promised and to certify unmistakably his purposes. So that as Griffiths puts it, for Abraham, the fundamental element of the promise had already been fulfilled through the return of Isaac from the altar. And I think that makes sense now if you look at verse 16 of our passage, and it's the last verse we'll cover today, because here the pastor explains what's going on. I think. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves. This is just the way oaths work and worked in the ancient Near East generally. I mean, if you'd, you'd swear by the king or you'd swear by a god in the ancient Near East. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Now, don't misunderstand the point that the pastor is making here, because there are differences that are here. I mean, oaths sworn by people have as their fundamental purpose to deal with the fact that people can't always be trusted. I mean, obviously, that's not the case with the Lord, as the writer will make clear in the next passage, as is also revealed by the fact that God swears by himself. I mean, that's the point of saying that. You don't need some higher authority than God to know that what he says is true. There's no doubt that the promises of God were true before the oath. That's not, that's not at issue. It seems to me, rather, that the point isn't in what's different about the oaths people make versus the oath that God makes. Rather, the point is in what the oath is for. That the Lord uses the oath form here, not because he must, but because it communicates something to Abraham. It communicates the guarantee, the confirmation. That's the point of the oath. The pastor's argument is a fortiori here, from the lesser thing to the greater thing. If oaths, even among people, are given to provide confirmation, then how much more when the oath taker is God, right? And all the more, as you notice how when God makes an oath, it's accompanied also by an action that secures what he promised. So that as Jonathan Griffiths concludes, in the case of God, quote, an oath is a verbal affirmation with an attendant, tangible guarantee and fulfillment. In other words, it's certain. <laughs> The promises of God are certain. It's conclusive. Now, if that's right, and I, that's our morning today, but if that's right, 
if we've rightly understood the significance of those verses, verses 13 to 16, maybe, maybe then you can begin to see just a little bit how powerful this becomes now in verses 17 to 20, which is where we'll be next time. Let's just read it. So, the pastor continues, <laughs> connecting what he's about to say here to what you just studied in verses 13 to 16, right? So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, ah, think about who that is, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Oh, the big question for next time is, what oath is that? The same one that we just talked about in verses 13 to 16, or is this something else? He guaranteed it with an oath, verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things, uh, another question for next time, what two things is that exactly? By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. And then here's home plate, ready? We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. That's what we want. That's what the oaths are for that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's where we'll pick it up next time. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.